Today's show is sponsored by The Pre-Cut Store. The Pre-Cut Store carries fat quarters, jelly rolls, charm packs, and layer cakes from your favorite fabric manufacturers like Moda, Robert Kaufman, Riley Blake, and more. They also carry a wide selection of Oracle thread. Amazon Prime members receive free shipping and many items can be shipped worldwide. Please visit them at theprecutstore.com. Welcome to episode 69 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about print magazines with my guest, Janine Van Gool. Janine Van Gool is the publisher, editor, and designer of Uppercase, a quarterly print magazine for the creative and curious. Uppercase publishes content inspired by design, typography, illustration, and craft. Her magazine and books celebrate the process of making, the commitment to craft, and the art of living creatively. Janine got her start working as a freelance graphic designer for arts and culture clients and has also taught typography and publication design at the college level. She's been a shop owner and bookseller, a gallery curator. She sold a line of greeting cards wholesale, made 10,000 books by hand with lots of help, and has sewn her own products for retail. She has a particular fondness for typewriters and a passion that has inspired a book about their graphic history. Her debut fabric collection is launching this June with Wyndham Fabrics. She's often asked, do you ever sleep? To which she replies, yes, by the end of the day, I'm exhausted. She lives in Calgary, Canada with her board game designing husband and curious son. Janine Van Gogh, welcome. Thank you, Abby. I'm really happy to be talking with you this morning. Yeah, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, so I'm so <laughs> excited that we finally get a chance. Um, so I want to just start by talking about uppercase specifically. I have a stack of them sitting here, um, and I've loved uppercase for so long. And one of the things I think that stands out about it um, that you've spoken about in the past is that most magazines that you get have a focus on consumerism, right? They're about things that you should envy, that you should buy to make your life better, to make you look better, to make you thinner, all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Just basically things that you should consume. And I really get the sense that uppercase has a different focus. And I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about that difference. Sure. That's sort of the main driving thing about uppercase content and how I like to... um, find the content that I that I feature in the magazine because it's all about making and creating and and that the things that we love can come from ourselves we don't have to go out and and purchase something that's mass produced or something that um is so called desirable by by mainstream media i think what i love about uppercase and and finding the amazing content and working with the different artists is that it is so heartfelt and everything that I feature is that it's that someone's ultimate passion that they're working on. And that really shows throughout the magazine that everyone featured is really um, in love with what they're doing, what, what, what they're making. And I know that you've said that anyone can be an uppercase magazine. I love that idea. Um, and, and I wanted to know what you meant by that, that <laughs> anyone could be an uppercase 
If if I actually had like 500 pages, then I would truly say that anyone could be in the magazine because I would love to include absolutely everyone who submits to the magazine. But what I mean by everyone is it doesn't you don't have to be like a professional um, artist. It doesn't have to be your main thing. You know, it it's uh, and it, you don't have to be a certain age. You don't have to come from a certain time of your life. Again, like just anyone who has a passion for creativity and making and wants to share it, I am totally open to seeing what they do. So often um, open calls for submissions are a really big part of the magazine now. And I do get submissions from all kind of levels and skill sets and walks of life. And I like to highlight those differences in the magazine whenever I can. And when if people are hearing this and are like, wow, Uppercase is such a beautiful magazine and to know that I might have a chance of being featured, how can they keep up with sort of your open calls? Like what's the best way for them to just get alerted when there is something to, so that they can see, oh, wait, my stuff might align with this mm-hmm. theme that she's collecting or something? Well, the best way is through my weekly newsletter, which I send out every Tuesday, and then also... Um, on the participate page of, of the website. Um, so that's, that's the best way to, to know firsthand what I'm working on. Okay. And, al- and also through social media and Twitter. Right. Okay. Okay. That's just good for people to know. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go way back. Um, uppercase began in 2005 and had a very different incarnation at that time. Although I guess in some ways it was actually really similar, but at that time it was a gallery in a shop with your graphic design studio in the back. And what was your sort of concept for the gallery and shop? Like, what did you feature there? Um, well, it was an offshoot of of things that I was looking at as a designer. So, like I said, I was in the back of the shop and in the front was kind of a, a showcase. And I was in a building called Art Central, which was a three-level building in downtown. Um, and their mandate was that it had to be a public. So I couldn't just be a designer. I'd have to have some public component to it. So I thought, well, I'll open up kind of like a a design gallery and feature things that other graphic designers or visually oriented people would like. So there was a shelf of of design and art books and um, a wall for the gallery in which I would show um, illustration work and design and, and commercial photography work and eventually did curated shows. And then I also had products that were design-related, and with my own shop, I thought, oh, well, I need to have my own product, so I started making things for my shop and doing greeting cards and making books and all sorts of things. So in a way, you're right that it was like it, it was like a giant physical magazine, the same thing where I'm like multitasking and doing all sorts of different topics in one spot. That's how Uppercase started. Yeah, and it's really – it was collaborative, right, from the beginning. It's kind of interesting that the space – dictated that it be public and therefore you had to sort of curate something and open it up for everybody to see. And so you did and it became these collaborations with other artists whose work you would show or sell in the shop. Um, And then, you know, as your company evolved and became a magazine and an independent publisher, um, you really do the same thing where you're featuring other people's work, curating around a theme. um, And I don't know, kind of tapped into something inside of you that you're really good at. Mm, thank you. Well, and I much prefer doing this in print than in a physical store. <laughs> what, was it about, what was it about the store that uh, wasn't really your cup of tea? <laughs> well, I'm an introvert. So, <laughs> so having my office in a place where anyone could randomly come in at any time of the day, that was tough on me. <laughs> 
So um, I, I grew a lot, uh, though, and I learned a lot by having that situation. And I met lots of really great people. And I kind of learned how to get out of my shell and to, to be more public in a way, which sort of translates, I guess, to the, the online aspect of what I do with uppercase. But certainly shopkeeping was kind of a detour in what I really like to do. So when I decided to close that part up, I wasn't too, too sad about it. Because prior to that, you had been working at home as a freelancer for many years. Yeah, probably about um, maybe 12 years or something, like just working off, you know, the room off the kitchen and various apartments and such. And so um, I was actually designing a newsletter um, that featured this Art Central building concept in it. And that's how I f- heard out about it. And I went to the grand opening and thought, wow, this is really neat. Like if there's actually this community in my city for creative people, I'd like to be in the middle of it. So within like the month, I had rented a space and just decided I would like to see what life was like outside of my home. And have you ever gone back or do you do, you, was that a good idea? I mean, was that a good move? It was an excellent move because it really, once I was in there, um, I realized how much I love being a creative entrepreneur. And, and the, the shop, even though it didn't really suit my personality at the beginning, I really liked having the challenge of, well, what, what can I have in the shop that people are going to like? How can I design um, a show that people are going to want to see? How can I curate the, the products that people are going to want to come in and purchase? And then once I could see the potential in there, it was becoming far more interesting for me to think about that than to think about client work, for example. So that's really how I made the transition from working for other people to working for myself. Yeah. And again, right, that space was really important here. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like having, discovering that space and then going for it, you know, paying the rent, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. you don't pay when you're already, when you're working from home and you're working in the room off the kitchen. Um, But it was a really, like pushed you to really change and to do new and bigger things. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's really good to hear, for people to hear, I think. Sometimes we, we feel like, oh, we should just stay, save money and stay home. But, <laughs> but sometimes it's better to, to push yourself to move. So, um, so one of the, the shows that you curated way back when was called Old School. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lisa Congdon made a piece for that show, which I have hanging here in my studio. Oh, really? Yes. You purchased it? <laughs> we did a swap. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. And um, I love it. It's been hanging in my house for, I mean, probably since right after that show came down. Yeah. So um, yeah, I made her a bird. So anyway, I just was oh, thinking about that last night when <laughs> I was reading up on you. I was like, oh yeah, that's where this came from. So, <laughs> um, so that was uppercase way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so then you transitioned into creating this wonderful magazine in 2009. Um, and do you want to just talk a little bit about that transition, what that looked like? Sure. Well, going back to the old school, um, that was an exhibition. I can't remember the year. Maybe it was 2006 or seven or something. But um, it was a group show with maybe oh, 60 or so artists. And I had mailed out like vintage school supplies and and papers and stuff to all these different artists. And then they were just supposed to use that as a jumping off point for creating work. And then they mailed it into me. And then I did the show, um, which I changed the gallery up. So it was like a kind of a vintage classroom. And then companion to the show was a book um, called old school. So um, at that time, like I just loved 
the idea of publishing my own things. And so through the gallery, that's sort of where I um, step my toe into that part of, of business. And then once I had done a few books that way, just like, wow, I, I want to do this more often. Um, and I had been designing a magazine for a client that and finally they, they folded that magazine. So I thought, well, now my magazine brain is open and I seem to love putting books together. Why don't I just make a magazine and I'll do that four times a year and that'll be what my main business is. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much the extent of my business plan too was like, ah, I think I'd <laughs> like to do it. <laughs> I think I'll like to do it and it'll be hard work, but oh, I can do it. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how it, it started. And why did you decide on that quarterly um, system? Was that just what felt manageable? Yes. Yeah, there's no way an independent person could do a monthly magazine of the scope that I had in mind anyway. Um, and I wanted to have a magazine that had that would be physically substantive, that would have like a nice spine, so it had to have at least 80 pages in the opening launch issue. And um, I wanted to have time to to work on the content and not be always rushed to release it. Although now I know like a quarterly magazine, that's actually, that's still a lot of content and it's always feels rushed and there's not never enough time. But, um, I thought quarterly would be something that I could manage and, um, also sustain from a financial standpoint if I had enough subscribers. Mm -hmm. And that first print run was a thousand copies, right? That's right. And what are you at now? Can I ask? 13,000. That's amazing. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. So that's from Thanks. 2009 to now. So that's like six and a half years, something seven like years, that. Seven yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. 13,000. I think that's a really respectable <laughs> base. <laughs> which which doesn't mean when a, an issue is printed, those don't all go out at once. But um, I have about 5,000 subscribers, which is amazing. And then another thousand or so go to stores, and then another thousand goes to a distributor in the UK, and it um, might be about seventeen hundred go to Australia for a distributor there, and then the rest I put in my fulfillment warehouses, and they get sent out when people are become new subscribers or, or when people like back issues. I see. So, so having like a really big print run like that is an inv investment in in future sales because my content isn't time sensitive. So any back issue is, is still relevant. Right. And you know, that kind of brings me just as a, on a personal note, these magazines are collector, you know, issues. They're not something that, you know, you get the magazine, like you get people magazine, you read it and then you toss it when you're done. Mm -hmm. um, or even I, I subscribe to fast company magazine, which is mm -hmm. a business related magazine, which I really enjoy. But I will tell you that on the last page, I read it all the way through. And then on mm -hmm. the last page, when I finish the last word, I throw it away <laughs> <laughs> because what am I going to do with, you know, I don't need fast company, but I have, I mean, I have issues of uppercase. I'm just looking at my shelf. I think I have issue two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I have issues two through eight just sitting here, and they've been on my shelf from whenever that was back in yeah. 2009. <laughs> so, and I have no plans to get rid of them. Part of it is because the spines are beautiful. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the spines? And, and um, did the spines in some way lead to the fabric design with Wyndham? I don't know if there's a connection there. Definitely. So okay. the, the spines, like I said, when I first started out, I wanted to have the magazine to have some substance physically to it and so I wanted it to be perfect bound with a spine um, so that the spine would become part of the identity of the magazine because you know if, if you have it on your shelf 
I like people to be able to glance at their shelf and know, oh, there, that's my uppercase collection right there. So that was sort of a, a concept I had right from the beginning um, because that's one of the features that I admire in, in other magazines that I've seen over the years. So um, then to make each spine unique, they have a different pattern design that references the content within that issue. So the first issue was really simple. Like I did have some articles about polka dots and stuff. So there was a dot pattern on the spine. And then issue two that you have there, there was a, a picture of a kind of a spilt um, melting ice cream cone. And then there's a waffle pattern on that, on the waffle cone. And so there's a, a kind of a diagonal waffle pattern on that spine. So it goes on like that. And so since I've been doing this for many years, I've got this collection of of unique spine patterns that I've designed over the years. And at a certain point, um, a few years back already, I think, wow, this that would look really nice as fabric. Someday I'd love to turn that into fabric. Um, and then through some some good luck and, and nice people, I met up with the folks from Wyndham Fabrics and was able to work with them to turn it into fabric. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and what just tell us what the collection is called. Um, and it's out in stores now, right? Um, it's heading to stores for June. June. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called the uppercase collection. So that's easy to remember. <laughs> um, and it's, there's 29 SKUs, which I can't even, ama- like, I'm still shocked that they wanted to make so much fabric. Um, but so there's different spine patterns that, that readers will recognize. And then one new one that I designed, which is a, a repeating alphabet thing that, um, I thought it was appropriate to have one in there that was alphabetical for, for the uppercase name. So yeah, they're they're on their way soon. Yeah, that is really exciting. And I wanted to talk since we're on the topic of fabric. Um, let's just I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I wanted to talk about QuiltCon because mm-hmm. you were a QuiltCon judge last year. Yes. And yes. Um, so QuiltCon generally, correct me if I'm wrong, they have three judges, mm-hmm. um, and one is like an outside artist. And then one is a quilter, right? And then yep. then there's a third one. I don't remember what that one's role is. The third one is like an officially um, designated quilt judge. Like they have, they have like credentialed judging. Got so, it. Okay. Yeah. So if a real judge. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And so which were you like the outside artist? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, wow. So that was, that must have been, first of all, pretty exciting phone call to get <laughs> when it came in. Um, and, uh, and just tell us what it was like. I mean, what, 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 what did the days look like and how did you feel going out there to judge quilts? Mm-hmm. Well, so that was, I guess, in 2015 in January, I believe it was. I went down to Austin where they had their office and it was Carolyn Friedlander and Stevie Graves and I were the judges. And, um, yeah, it was just intense because we had to look through hundreds of quilts over the course of, I think it was three full days. Um, and yeah, I didn't really know exactly what to expect because I I wasn't part of that modern quilt world yet. And I had never been to QuiltCon and such, but I was excited about the quality of what I was going to see and the inspiration of, of seeing this design close up and to admire the handwork, for example, I was really excited to see the handwork um, category. Um, but it was a really great experience. Um, Carolyn was wonderful to meet um, and spend time with her. And now she's a nice friend to have. And 
Um, the people at QuiltCon were so respectful of the quilts and they're so organized and it was really um, marvelous to watch them as a system. It was like, wow, they're really impressive people. And then the quilts themselves were amazing to see um, one after the other. And even after seeing a hundred in a day, it's like, wow, I can't wait to see the variety of the next day. So it was really a good experience. Yeah. I do think it's cool that they, they bring in an outside uh, artist. I think that's, that, that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Lisa Congen was that person this year. Yes. <laughs> and she wrote a really nice post, um, mm-hmm. which if you, if you haven't seen it, um, people should go check out about her saying that same feeling that she had um, about going out to judge and, and sort of being re-inspired by the process. I'd like to pause things for just a moment to talk to today's sponsor, Krista Watson of The Precut Store. This is Krista Watson, and I'm the owner of The Precut Store. Along with my husband, we sell precuts like jelly rolls, fat quarters, layer cakes, and charm packs to help everyone make quilts much more quickly and much more fun. Awesome. And where do you sell them? We live here in Las Vegas and we work out of our home, but we actually sell through Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon. So they do all of the shipping and storage for us, makes it a lot easier. Okay. And so for somebody who's never bought pre-cuts before, like they just maybe are just getting into quilting or maybe they're just used to buying yardage and haven't really ventured into the world of pre-cuts, what do you think is kind of special about them for quilters? Well, I think um, there's two things. First of all, a lot of the labor is already done for you because you don't have to spend so much time cutting them up into individual pieces because a lot of the pre-cutting is done. And also, I've realized that I really like to make scrappy quilts. And for people that want to have a variety of fabrics in their quilt, but they don't want to have to go and buy 30 or 40 different fabrics, they get a wide variety in one little bundle. So I think that's so much fun. Yeah. And they all match, which is so, like, if that's so convenient. I just recently made um, an elephant out of a pre-cut jelly roll. And it was so great because you know you're getting all this variety in this patchwork, but it's all going to go together. Exactly. It's going to look great no matter what you do. Right. And I love that. And I also hate cutting things in a straight line. So it's all cut for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I'll i take my strips and I'll, I will cut them into smaller pieces, but having not having to line up these big, long pieces of fabric is really, really convenient. Yeah. If you don't have a big cutting surface too, you know, like if you're, you know, working from a small area in your dining room or something like that, and you don't really have a big cutting table, you know, having just to cut pre-cut strips into smaller pieces is much easier. Exactly. And and you know what? It's okay even if you don't use them. Some people like to buy them and just store them in their their room on their shelf and let them look pretty. And that's fun too. Visit the Precut Store at theprecutstore.com. And now back to my conversation with Janine. Well, and it was an, it was great to see all of these quilts and then to have some time afterwards to process what I had seen. And I still had in the back of my mind that I'd like to have this fabric. And at the time, it, I didn't... I didn't have those connections. I, I hadn't pursued it yet, but I could see that with my spine pattern designs that there really was a place for it within the industry. So that was, you know, special to have that opportunity and to see see it kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And how did you connect with Wyndham? Were, was that just through a friend of a friend? Um, actually, issue 21 was a surface pattern design issue. Um, and there were hundreds of people who submitted. And then we had, I think, 100 people were featured in that issue. And the the interior cover artist that I selected was Jan Avalana. And um, 
the people at Wyndham Fabrics saw that issue and really liked Jan's work and commissioned her to do an entire collection along with some other people who were in, in that issue. So that's sort of where the initial uppercase and Wyndham connection came about. And then I followed up with Wyndham. We did a little interview about Jan and how that happened. So um, kind of got to know the Wyndham people and they got to know me. And then at some point uh, I was emailing about like a customer service related subscription thing and thanking them for, for renewing their subscription and got to talk a bit with Miss Mickey Kruger at Wyndham. And then at some point, oh yes, he was at he was at the QuiltCon, and he um, sent an email saying he really liked my judge's choice um, that I had selected. And it's like, oh, well, he's sitting there at QuiltCon, and he has time to uh, email me. Maybe I'll just send a quick little email back. And I attached a photograph of all the magazine spine patterns and said, I've always admired or thought that this would be nice fabric. What do you think? And he basically said yes. And then went from there. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So to me, to me, that speaks to something that I, I always emphasize, which is about being your own agent. And what I mean by that is looking at your work the way that an agent would look at your work, um, which is sort of a shift in identity from looking at your work as the maker of your work to looking at your work as like the way an agent would package it. And so you're in this conversation with him and you know, going back and forth a little bit and sort of have this opportunity, this little moment, right? Like mm-hmm. I could attach the pictures now. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, obviously when I thought about it earlier, sure. but it, like that wasn't the right moment because mm-hmm. we were talking about other people and other things and, and it just didn't seem like that was the right time. But after we had sent these emails a few times, like, well, he's sending me messages. So I'll just send this one back. And it just seemed like that's the, felt like the right time to do it. So. Right. Exactly. So yeah. it's relationship building as well. And and actually that brings me to another question that I admire about something I admire about you, which is risk tolerance, right? So that mm-hmm. is a risky move <laughs> to mm-hmm. say like, I mean, you'd built up the back and forth and you did feel like it was the right time, but I think there is a segment of the population that would still say like, I'm not going to send it because it's risky. If he wanted it, he would think of it and choose me. You know, he would come to me and, and that might've happened, but it might not have ever happened. Um, mm-hmm. And you wanted it to happen. And so you went out and sort of tried <laughs> to make it happen and took a risk, all right? Because he could have come back and been like, no, you know, like, I don't know. That's not at all what I want, you know, or like, how dare you kind of thing. <laughs> well, right? so, yeah, I don't see that as a risk, though. I just see that as like, well, if it's rejected, then so be it. Then I can move on and try somewhere else. Like, mm-hmm. that's actually valuable information to have. So um, I think it was more about just timing and, and the right the right people and the right fit. But I, I do, I can appreciate that some people um, get afraid of that possible rejection. Right. But um, you will, you'll never know unless you try. So. And that, right. And that's what really brings me to how you fund a lot of your projects because, so you have uppercase, but you also have a lot of like what I would call projects you're passionate about um, that you pursue and and publishing projects. Like uh, you wrote a book about typewriters, for example, because you collect typewriters and type, typewriter ephemera and love typewriters. And so you wrote this beautiful book and, um, and showed off all of that collection. And 
the way that it was funded and the way that you fund some of many of these projects is really through a system of pre-orders where you describe the project and tell people about it. And you've built a reputation, obviously, of creating beautiful media. And then you put it up for pre-order sometimes a year prior to when the actual publication will be in people's hands. And people buy it in advance um, before it's even been made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is some risk there too. And um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of taking those risks and um, and why that works for you? Sure. Well, in a way, when someone subscribes to a magazine, that's what they're doing, right? Is they're, they're pledging their support for future issues that haven't been made yet. So I do something similar for my books. And now I have, I've been doing this for quite a long time and every project I've ever said I'm going to do, I've, I've done or they're happening now. So I have a good track record. I think people trust that they'll get what they pay for. Um, and so the reason I like to do pre-orders is to, um, first of all, just practically speaking, to get some of the, the, the money to help pay for the physical production of a book, for example, because um, it's really expensive to, to print and ship out a book. So it's nice to know that there's people who want to support it in its early stages. Um, and it also helps me gauge, like, how many should I print? What's what's the nature of, of the, like, what's the potential audience for the book? And there's a lot of reasons to, to let people know in advance what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's so different from the way that, um, traditional publishing works. I feel like in traditional publishing, I don't know, typically it seems like, um, it's about like the big reveal, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've probably also like keeping it secret just in case there's other, you know, mm-hmm. similar titles and competition. And some of that it is a little bit nerve wracking for me. Um, to think, you know, I don't even know what's going to be coming out from all the big publishers, but I won't know. So I just forge ahead. And as long as I'm, you know, inspired and thrilled to be working on the projects that I'm working on and that there's people in my little like niche world of people who like uppercase, then that's okay. It just, that's, that's good enough. Right. It's a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. And another way that you fund some projects is by having sort of the artists that will be featured, um, like pay a, a fee, in the, you know, at the start to be able to be in the publication. Does that make sense? So I'm yeah. thinking like the compendium that just came out, which I love and have by my bedside table. <laughs> and I think I have maybe like 10 more of this is a book that you put together of artist stories and there's a lot of artist stories in there. I don't know how many there are. I think I have 10 left um, that I haven't read yet, but I, I'd like read two a night and I love them. Um, and, but the, the artists that submitted the ones that were selected did pay like a small submission fee and then that helped fund the book. Yeah. So um, a, a few years ago, even before, well, many years ago, before I even started the magazine, I did a, a book called Work Life, which is a directory of illustration. And that one was um, meant to be promotion for all these illustrators who were featured. So they paid a fee um, to be in the book, like after I selected people who, whose portfolios were very good. And so they paid a fee. And for that fee, um, I wrote an article about them and and produced the book. It was all pulled together to pay for the printing and distribution. And then each um, person submitted their top 10 dream list of who they'd like to work for. 
And then I did the research of like, okay, how do I contact these people? What's their mailing address? And then when the book came out, I sent the book to all those people's, you know, wish lists, as well as other folks in the industry who might purchase and support illustration. And then the leftover books I sell in my shop. So that's, that was the early model and that worked really well. I did three editions of work life. And then for the compendium, um, the fee was significantly less and that was more just to cover the cost of the administration of going through hundreds of submissions and then also towards going to the initial um, print um, publication costs and editorial costs. So it was like 65 or $75 to submit. Um, and it was a really extensive questionnaire that people had to go through and upload their photos. And everyone who submitted did get a book in return. So they were in a, getting something regardless of whether they actually ended up in the book or not. Um, and I was able to select 66 artists for that book. Right. Okay. So that's a really interesting model. And I think, um, I just think it's good for people to hear different funding models um, and creative funding models for ways to make something work mm-hmm. um, when you don't have a ton of capital to throw at something right from, from day one. So, um, so that's, thank you for sort of sharing the backstory behind the finances. Yeah. And unlike Kickstarter, like I, when I start one of these projects, I'm already committed to making it happen. So whether I reach the, you know, the, if I don't recoup the entire print run off the bat, that's okay. I know I'll, I'll sell it eventually. That's, that's the risk that I take on. But if I'm, if I'm going to invest the time in like, pre-launching and pre-ordering a book, then I'm, I'm going to make that thing happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that comes down to your track record, which is impeccable. So, <laughs> and that's important. All right. So I want to jump back to high school. You were the editor of the high school yearbook. <laughs> yes. And yes. What, was the, what was the yearbook called? Oh, I don't know. It was just, it was, it was the, just the yearbook. Just the, yeah, just the yearbook. And what was your high school called? Walter Murray Collegiate Institute. And where was that in Calgary? No, that was in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Okay. And uh, <laughs> what what did you learn? What was it like being being the editor? Um, well, it's funny because when I was in elementary school, I dreamed about being the editor. I thought that was going to be the most amazing thing to to be in high school and be the yearbook editor. Uh-huh. That was my goal. <laughs> And fortunately for me, absolutely nobody else in the entire school ever had that goal. So <laughs> they're like, oh, great. It's perfect. Yeah. So I was the editor um, and I had a really, really great graphic arts program at that school. It was sort of a, like a technical high school in a way. And they had a great graphic design wing and there was a, a dark room and they taught us photography and you could rent your like Pentax K1000 and um, so I, I just basically as a, like I said, as an introvert, I could just experience high school by lurking in the sidelines and taking photographs of stuff and talking to people when I had to, like on behalf of the yearbook and writing stories and such and just kind of documenting the experience. So I don't know, it was good. In grade 12, I, I put the whole thing together and I had a few people that worked on it and I learned a little bit about working with other people in a creative way and it was good. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, that's great. I like that, that role you had in high school of documenting high school. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I would never have gone to a football game or all these basketball games and such if I didn't have a reason to. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> so, and, but it gave you, it gave you a, a job, like, yeah. you know, and then it's a lot easier to be there because you're, as you said, you're there on behalf of the yearbook. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was, I took it very seriously that I, I was going to document the whole year um, as well as I could from different perspectives, like, you know, from the sports or from the academic, from the arts, all sorts of things. So yeah, it was good. I bet that was a really good issue of the yearbook. Oh, it's it's so horrible to look at it. <laughs> I keep meaning at some point when I go home is like to photograph it and kind of show where it started because it's hilarious. And it was like we had a computer, but we had it had no page layout at the time. So you could only print it out in long columns and the fonts would always come out bitmap. So I'd have to draw around it and smooth it out with a marker and it was all done with paste up and anyway. Wow. It was a good old what year? Sweat. What year was that? Well, that was in the. Well, I graduated in ninety one from high school. Okay, okay. all right. So just. To... <laughs> and you went to college for graphic design. So did you learn? Um, I mean, graphic design kind of went through a, a huge shift when everybody, became, you know, when everybody started using Illustrator and Photoshop and Adobe and things kind of completely changed. So did you have, I mean, your college was probably prior to, to all of that. So did you have to teach yourself how to use those those tools? Yeah. Well, I took a, a visual communications class, so that was illustration and design. And none of the instructors used computers. Um, there was a summer course on, about learning to use a Mac, so I, I did take that. Um, and by the final year of college, people were using the computer um, a lot. And I just remember trying to print out projects was always a nightmare. And you'd have all these floppy disks or zip drives and all these things that would never work. And it was all clunky and you're wasting time at the print shop. And it was not really very efficient, but it was, it was the early days of, of working with those tools. Right. Right. And so then after that, you must have really sort of gave yourself an intensive yeah, when I when I graduated, I bought a computer, and I then yeah, then from then on, I was using it regularly. Right, right, yeah. It's kind of fascinating, like the the crew of people who came up like right before, you know, and had to figure that stuff out on their own. I think it's really different to go to graphic design school now, you know, mm-hmm. super different experience. So, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, uppercase and its. Um, some some of the beautiful parts of it. And I I know that you're really committed to staying in print only. And I think there's a lot of pressure now to go digital, to have an app, for example, um, and give people both a digital and a print subscription. And that's something that you have resisted. And I I wondered if you wanted to talk about why. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been resisting it ever since the iPad came out. Um, I just... I love print on paper, and I love holding the magazine. I love that people like to smell the ink. Um, I like and the and- By the way, it <laughs> smells really good. Can I just tell you, like, I don't know if that, anyone who's listening who has uppercase knows what I'm talking about. It smells so good. Why does it smell so good? Do well, have- it's just it's soy-based ink. I don't know. On the uncoated paper, it just... It has that inky smell. Oh, like there's an uppercase smell. It really, I'm <laughs> not, I'm not kidding. Like I know exactly what it smells like. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So, well, it, so it's a physical thing and I like being able to insert goodies in there. Like, um, the issue coming up is going to have bookmarks that were, um, designed and submitted by readers and there's going to be, um, for current subscribers, there's a 16 page lookbook about my fabric that's inserted into that. Um, so you can't, you can't do these special treats and in, in an app 
you know, that's just, it doesn't work for me. And as a one woman design team here, I have no time to try and make it into an app and do all these other things. But what it really comes down to is economically, people would expect to pay not very much for an app, whereas the magazine is $18 cover price. And it would feel wrong to to, to put the $18 worth of content on an app and then people would expect to pay a lot less for it. Uh-huh. And then I wouldn't be able to compensate my contributors for all that either. So just I just take it out of the equation and just forward with print. That's the way to go. And you, you really love goodies. I mean, that's something that I think you're known for. Um, so like the compendium, when I got it, it um, well, first of all, it has more than one cover, um, which is amazing. And, and then it was wrapped in yarn. Um, and you've done all kinds. Do you want to just tell us some of the, some of the things that you remember, some of the, the goodies that stand out mm-hmm. to you that you remember, like the special touches that you've put into some of the publications that you've sent out to people? Right. Well, um, within the magazine, I, there was one that we I collected a whole bunch of vintage matchbox labels. I got this massive collection off of eBay. And then my printer, um, they have a, a workforce that comes in for these like manual um, hand intensive projects. And they just st- stuck in one of these matchbox labels inside each of the subscriber copies. And we've had... Um, glassine envelopes of vintage stamps and that I had amazing volunteers come here to my studio and we spent days and days stuffing stamps into these envelopes and then the people at the printer inserted those into subscriber copies and um, issue 24 had a swatch of authentic feed sack um, fabric glued on the cover so that that's you can't do that in an app that's all about handmade and print and tactile. So yeah. And it's, I love it. it's so special. I love it too. And I love that you're committed to it. And I love that that's what subscribers get. In other words, because they've, as you said, they've sort of taken a bet on you that mm-hmm. they are paying for something that hasn't been made yet. Um, but when it comes through that bet they've taken, they're going to get this really special experience. Um, not only is the magazine beautiful and special and smells good, but they're also going to get this, you know, sometimes these really unexpected surprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't do something like that every time, but I, as much as I can, I like to, to put those in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do all of this, which we haven't even touched the surface. You do books. Uh, you do a lot more. But um, all of this whole media empire <laughs> is um, is just Janine. And there was some time a while ago when you had some staff who were working full-time. Is that right? Or were they working part-time? I did have a full-time marketing person, and I had an intern for a couple of months. Okay. And then at, at a certain point, you decided to pull back from that mm-hmm. and to sort of tighten up. Do you want to talk about, was that like an overexpansion or, or sort of, was that hard? Uh, yes. <laughs> so I, also, I also had a subscription manager person who was in charge of doing subscriptions and, and shop orders and stuff. So, yeah, um, well, it's a lot of work for one person. And I thought, well, this is not sustainable for me to do it all myself. And so the logical thing was to hire other people. And so particularly when I had, I there was a, a few years when I still had my space in Art Central, so I still had to maintain the public aspect and and do my magazine. Um, so I did have people helping out there. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's it's a tough one to really analyze, but in the end, it just turned out that I I didn't have enough business to sustain their salaries, and partly that's because they weren't able to generate enough sales by working, and maybe it was not a great fit with the people I had working with me, um, and. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a hard topic to think about, but it was the worst time in my entire business career to have to let people go. Um, but it turned out to be the absolutely the best decision. And from the pit of that, because I was at the point where I couldn't, I couldn't pay myself and I wouldn't have been able to pay the print bill unless I had let people go. So it was the, certainly the lowest point I'd ever experienced. But from then, it's just been nothing but growth and growth that I can't even like I'm so amazed at how well things are going. It's it's been been fantastic. So, yeah. So <laughs> and do, I do. Do you I think do. that you'll? Do you think that there will come a time when? I mean, that was a learning experience. It might have been the wrong moment. It might have been the wrong team. It might have been a lot of different things. But um, but now you're, as you said, in a in a stage of wonderful growth. And I wonder whether you would consider down the road trying again with staff in maybe a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been almost two years ago. Um, and you know, we, you always talk about recommendations. One that I didn't mention was um, I took the Marie Forleo B-School Oh, you course. did? Yeah. I did. And I was taking that when I was going through the toughest time in my business. And I, I kind of, I had these suspicions lurking in my intuition and just practically speaking that, that the the way the business was going and, and the people I had working for me as far as um, our outward facing uh, persona, like how we were communicating about uppercase wasn't wasn't quite right because it was going farther away from from my voice and, and my perspective, which was how it began. Um, and so taking um, B school course, which is like a five week online course, um, it really helped to validate some of the things that I, I thought I needed to do and to make those tough decisions. Um, and I, I was really lacking for having a, a business mentor. So this became kind of a, a virtual mentorship that I experienced. So um, after credit, taking that course was really, really valuable to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and out of it, I just, okay, well, I have to do these tough decisions. And it's like pulling off the bandaid and, and rebooting the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's but since then it has been nothing but growth and positive experience. And my level of stress, which was really the biggest problem I was having, other than finances, was was really lifted. Like not having that responsibility of of making sure other people were doing their jobs and making sure that I could pay for their salaries. Once that was gone, I could really start having more fun and joy with my company and with what I do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was like a good turning point. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that's really important for people to hear that there can be, you know, decisions that don't go so well and times when, as you said, you're kind of in the pit, like it's really mm-hmm. hard and um, you're not really sure where to go and you can survive and you yes. can make a change, even if it's a really hard one and you can keep going and then mm-hmm. you can experience success afterward. Um, so hang in there (laughs) for sure. And I learned a lot about, um, having other people working with me and for me and such, and, um, my failings as a boss and, and where, um, my hiring decisions and working decisions and how I could change that for the future. If I did decide to 
hire more people. Uh-huh. Um, but in recently, like it has become, it's too much for me to do everything. So my husband, Glenn, is taking over the customer service emails and, and filling the shop orders and stuff. So that's been good. Um, now that our son is in kindergarten, he has more time to, to help out with that. So that's a relief for me. Right, right, right. Okay, so, you know, it, it, you could still get more help down the road. But for now, you do handle almost everything yourself. And I wanted to talk about um, what sounds like your favorite tool for doing that, which is Evernote. And mm-hmm. I don't use Evernote. I did download Evernote at one point and try and became confused and (laughs) then sort of gave up probably way too soon. Um, And I know people who absolutely love Evernote. And I wondered if you could explain just first briefly what it is and then more extensively, like exactly how you use it to keep uppercase going. Okay. Well, I was an early adopter and I've been using it since issue two of the magazine. So that goes pretty far back. Um, so how I use it is it's my it's my collecting dumping box for ideas that I might come across on the web. So I clip things into Evernote or if someone sends me an email or a pitch of an idea that I want to refer to later, then I put it into Evernote and I have um, different notebooks for each issue. And then I have um, a tagging system of different broad topics like something that's, say, um, embroidery or textile design or illustration or any of those sort of broad topics. And then I have narrower tags on themes that I'm working on. So everything that goes into Evernote, I like pre-sort it by having it all the tags. Um, and then uh, I also keep my content list of ideas in each notebook for each issue so I can start slotting things in and planning and such. So as far as the magazine production, it's a vital tool that I use for organizing the content. And I also use it for saving um, things like print quotes and such because everything is really searchable. So it's good to have it all all there. So like it's an external brain dump really. And having been using it since 2009 or so, it's it's really got everything in there. It's like getting a little bit a little bit big, but it's kind of like my own personal Google in there. Right. And so just to be clear, this is, um, it's an application, a web application, and you can get like a browser extension and then app on the phone as well. And so um, it's available on the cloud. So wherever you are from mm-hmm. whatever computer, it's there. Um, and do you use a free version? No, I use the professional and I had the business version too when I had other people for collaborating. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do the paid version. Okay. And you find that to be worth it. Yeah, it's not very much. It's like very, very inexpensive for what's in there. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. And and speaking of software, um, let's also – or uh, software, like speaking of apps, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about social media. Um, you do a really nice job. I mean, you have a blog and um, and you've had that for a long time, but you do a nice – you have your newsletter, which you spoke about. You do a nice job on social media as well, in particular Instagram. And I wanted to hear a little bit about sort of how you approach Instagram on a daily basis and what your Instagram strategy is, if there is one. My Instagram strategy is no strategy. (laughs) I have a strategy for Twitter and certainly having a weekly newsletter is a strategy. And when I post on my blog, I'm doing it for a particular reason. But Instagram, I keep 
for myself to have fun. So I still, I obviously like posting stuff about uppercase things and I'll show off the new cover and behind the scenes when I'm proofing and, uh, you know, my office and books and all of that goes on Instagram. Um, but I don't have, I don't like force myself to do it and I don't plan or schedule my Instagram posts. Um, and there's personal photos on there. Um, so I, tr- I keep Instagram fun because I enjoy it and I don't want to make it become cumbersome and, and, and work. And I don't worry about, you know, the analytics of Instagram and how many followers and likes and stuff. I just do what I like to do. And do you think that despite the fact that you do what you like to do, like I just saw um, a picture of you and your son and do you have a, a new home now? Mm-hmm. Yes, and you when you moved in, you know, um, with your arms in the air, just really <laughs> thrilled to have finally arrived, and and so that kind of thing. Um, and so you're saying you don't really look at the analytics; you do it, you do it for fun, and and you enjoy it. Um, and and does that? I mean, do you, do you worry that you know there's going to be these unprofessional? You know, people say, oh, you should never post something there. That's not professional or um, related to your business. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of all these theories out there. It has to be this curated thing, um, especially since you're a publisher, right? Like we should, the first nine images should be this gorgeous this <laughs> mosaic. And, and it sounds like you sort of shed all of that and kind of use it in a different way. Yeah, well, I do get a bit of like in, uh, Instagram anxiety when I think about it that way, like because um, I I do like to curate and I and I'm very aware visually what things the way I'd like it to be and everything, um, but also I just want to keep it as something that I enjoy to do. So yeah, I know I, I I do see that and sometimes I I do feel like oh I should be more. Um, I should plan out what I do a little bit more and have more of a of a vision or or a style of imagery that I post. But I can't do everything, and so that's one thing I decide I don't need to do. Right. But in, as far as Instagram goes, like that's as far as putting things onto Instagram. I don't have a, a plan, but Instagram is fantastic for business too. And that um, I owe so much to all these amazing readers who to take pictures of the magazine at their house and and tweet and Instagram about it because that's how I grow and find new subscribers. And I love to see um, what my readers are doing. So I follow a lot of people on Instagram and I can see, you know, what uppercase readers like and do. And that's really valuable to see. And so I, I really like Instagram. It's a really nice community and it's been very positive and everyone's really nice. And that's been my experience. So hopefully it stays that way. So two things. One is to say, um, I think it's great that you just do what you want to do. <laughs> and that's what I do. And I, um, I kind of feel like I get, I get the other side of it. Like I, I understand the theory. Um, but I also, um, sort of decided to not worry about it. Um, mm-hmm. so there's that. And then, and, and by the way, do you, so you can not worry about it and still be successful on Instagram. So you have 25,000 plus followers, you're doing great and you don't abide by these rules and you're good. Yeah. So I just well, wanted to. <laughs> low growth. That's been a long time that I've been on there and, and the followers on Twitter too. Like I started on Twitter with issue one in 2009. So 25,000 followers in seven years is not really that 
<laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's just the what it is. It I don't is. worry about that too much. Right, right. Okay. That's, so that's one thing. And then the other thing I wanted to um, just mention is, is there a hashtag people can use on either Instagram or Twitter when, when they do have an image of them, you know, with their morning coffee reading, <laughs> reading uppercase? Mm-hmm. There's two that I like to use. One is a hashtag uppercase love. And that's for pictures of the magazine and people sharing that part of it. And then the other one I like is uppercase reader. And that's for showing off your work or something you want me to see or, or help promote. Um, so let's say you've, you've just traded something, you're really proud of it or, or someone's knitting something and they're, they're proud of it and they can just post it on Instagram and do hashtag uppercase reader and then I'll find it eventually and I can see it and repost it um, onto Twitter or just see what you're up to and maybe you know, commission an article or something. You never know how it could happen. Okay, good. Well, I think that's mm-hmm. great for people to hear. So that's one way for them to get found by you. Um, mm-hmm. And that's excellent. So so use that um, hashtag upper, uppercase reader if you are indeed an uppercase reader. Um, okay, cool. So I want to save some time to to do, do our recommendations. And, and one of them actually was Evernote. So we covered that one already, which is, which is great. And um, you have two other ones. And one of them is Diane Gilliland's book. Diane is uh, Sister Diane, who is no longer blogging now, but um, was a fantastic blogger and a wonderful designer. And she wrote a book called All Points Patchwork that you wanted to recommend. Yes. So at, um, I've been seeing all these English paper piecing on, on Instagram and social media, people doing these really amazing pro- projects. So I was like intrigued with it. Um, and then when I was at QuiltCon, um, I found her book and purchased it. And I bought some little hexagon pre-cut paper pieces thinking this this is good I, I I'm it's something small that I could I could do a few here and there and I have all this fabric of mine now from from Wyndham I've got no shortage of things to play with so yeah I bought it just a few weeks ago at QuiltCon and read the book cover to cover it's a really good book um very informative and I like her her presentation of it is about these are the ways you can you can do English paper piecing and these are the things you need to know. And she has example projects, but it's not one of those books where here's the project and you step by step for the entire project. I like more that kind of free form where here's the basis for the technique and now you go ahead and you go make something. So I love this book yeah. as well. And um and what you'll learn in this book is how to design your own English paper piecing pattern. So if you want to make um, a pattern for, you know, a pillow cover or whatever it is that you want to design, she shows you how like the shapes um, integrate with one another and create a larger shape um, and then how to hand stitch, how to base and hand stitch those shapes together uh, so that they come together smoothly and, and all of that. So mm-hmm. it's really cool. And she shows you both the kind of manual way to to design if you want to use, you know, a protractor <laughs> and a compass and just do it by hand. And then she shows you also, you know, some tips for doing it on the computer. So um, it is really cool. And it's, it's really a reference book. Um, it's published by Story and they do, I think they do great books. So Yeah. And with that, like I, I bought those hexagons just as a starting point and then I quickly realized, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to do an entire project with hexagons. I want to do something a little bit more um, freeform. So I, I designed up like a hexagon slash triangle grid paper that I print out and now I'm just winging it as I go. So I'm just like, okay, what shape am I going to make? And then I cut out the paper piece out of my sheet of paper and then I'm just going to, I'm just going to wing it. 
That's great. So, so we'll see how that goes. And I'm going to, I'm going to make that as a download for people. Um, so that other people can have the hexagon yeah. sheet that I made. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. The thing I love about English paper piecing is you don't have to cut straight. So I am like not a fan of cutting anything in a straight line. And you can kind of cut roughly around the hexagon or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then when you fold it over the paper template, it's perfect. And so I love that. There's no need for perfect rotary cutting and all of that. Yes, I totally agree with you. <laughs> so I, I probably won't take pictures. Well, maybe I'll just take an Instagram of the back of my paper piecing. It's not, it's not perfect, but, but it's it looks the good front. from the front. That's yeah. right. It's the front. So that's my favorite hand quilting or hand piecing uh, technique. So, um, and then the other thing that you so kindly wanted to recommend was my weekly newsletter. Yes, <laughs> it's it's one that I get in my main inbox just to me, so that I know when, immediately when it when it when I get it. And I open it up right away, and you always have a ton of really great links. Um, yes, very good. I love it, Abby. You do a thank great you. job. Well, thank um, you. And because I look at so much stuff every day, all week long, it's just like overload. But you always have things that I've not come across that are fresh to me, and um, that are maybe not always like safe because you're you you're willing to enter into controversies and and post your own opinion and stuff. So I, I really admire it and I've, I've recommended it on Twitter and I'll recommend it again. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's very nice. And, um, I love putting it together. I will say sometimes it is stressful cause I'm like, I don't have enough really good links. So <laughs> I spend a lot of time on Tuesdays being like, there's gotta be other news. What else? Is happening? So, but, um, yeah, but in the end it always comes together. So yeah, it's great. And I, I like that people like it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that makes me feel really good. So thank you. Um, you. So if people want to send you a message or keep up with what is happening, um, where should they go where they can sign up for your newsletter and all of that good stuff? Well, you can go to uppercasemagazine.com slash free, and that's for the free content that I deliver in the newsletter. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at uppercasemag. Excellent. Okay, great. Well, Janine, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Washing Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. It was yeah. great. Awesome. And you've been listening to the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's sponsor, The Precut Store. The Precut Store carries fat quarters, jelly rolls, charm packs, and layer cakes from your favorite fabric manufacturers like Moda, Robert Kaufman, Riley Blake, and more. They also carry a wide selection of RFL thread. Amazon Prime members receive free shipping, and many items can be shipped worldwide. Please visit them at theprecutstore.com. And if you enjoy this show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. 